Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 to 7. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You may be seated. Thank you. As you're seated, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for a beautiful text that is also a challenging text. And the reality of the love that you've called us to, and I just pray that, Lord, you would help us to comprehend the depth of your love as we seek to love one another, and that in our loving one another, we would be assigned to the watching world around us of how good and loving you really are. So we pray that you would help us to take this into our hearts and minds and that it would work itself out in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. When I say, what is love? I really hope some of you hear the next line. Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. Most of you know I'm tone deaf, so I can't sing it for you. I'd like to would actually bring me a lot of joy. Some people are praying for my healing in Jesus' name. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. No, that's something we may have had that song in my head all week, thinking about what love is, which is how you have to phrase it if you don't want to follow it up with baby, don't hurt me no more. What is love? I apologize to all who are under 40 and who have no idea what I'm talking about. A few years ago, the journalist tracked down Hathaway, who's the author of that song, the, the artist who wrote those lyrics and became very famous for a very brief window of time in the 90s. This journalist wrote to Hathaway and said, what is love? That's the one question she had for him. And she said, answer this for me. This is what he said. People always ask me about what I meant. I meant that what is love needs to be defined by everyone by his own definition. It's unique and individual. For me, it has to do with trust, honesty, and dedication. I don't think this sort of self-definition is unique to one-hit wonders from the 90s. I actually think this is a pretty standard view of cultural love. It's a pretty standard cultural definition of love and how we come to arrive at what we believe about love. He says, love needs to be uniquely and individually defined by each person. Right? That's the cultural understanding we have, right? In the city that we live in, in the music that we listen to, in the films that we watch, in the art that we engage with, love is almost always defined uniquely and individually by each person. In fact, you may be sitting here today thinking, that's exactly what I think. I agree with Hathaway though he be in his 50s now, the great artist from the 90s, I still agree with him. You, you might think that, and that's okay. I, wa I want you to engage with what the Bible teaches about that. So if you came in today thinking very much in line with, with what he's saying, my hope is to give you another option. I think we have a better answer here in the scriptures. I think we have the truth here. And this is what I want to look at today. 
Last week, Sam did a wonderful job in 1 Corinthians 13. He walked us through the whole text and he mostly left four to seven for me to have today. What I want to do is just look at this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses four through seven, and I just want to talk about what love is. And, and mostly, I want us to reject a self-centered definition of love that leads to dysfunction. And I want us to embrace a biblical definition of love that will lead to life. That's what I'm looking for. I want us to reject a self-centered definition of love that leads to some dysfunction. And I want us to embrace a biblical definition of love that I believe will lead us to life. So the way that I want to define biblically uh, what love is today, I want to define that by looking at three things. We're going to look at the dysfunction in Corinth. We're going to talk about the character of God. We're going to talk about the heart of the gospel. Dysfunction in Corinth, the character of God, and the heart of the gospel. So look back at the text with me one more time. Let me read this again. It says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. There are 15 things in this text that love either is or is not. 15, I'm going to move through them very quickly, but your community group leaders have bigger definitions that I'm sure will be some help in your discussions this week if you're in a community group. See, the problem with this text is not that this text is hard to understand. The problem is this text is hard to do. And the doing is what Paul is actually concerned with here. This list gives us the attributes of a person who is supremely loving, but all of the things on this list, they cannot remain sort of abstracted ideas that float around as characteristics of this mythological person who is love. <laughs> Rather, we need to see that all of these things on this list are grounded in the action of love. They're not attributes that sort of float out here in sort of some uh, idealistic way, but they're things that are to be actionable in our love. In fact, in the original Greek text that we have translated into English here, these are all verbs. And I think it's important that we see this because this list is stressing the action of love. Now, if you decide to sit down this evening and, and use your extra hour, praise God, we got that back. I never want it to be stolen again. Yeah. Take your extra hour of, of wakefulness today and energy that you have and read through the whole of 1 Corinthians. If you're going to sit down and do that tonight, what I would say is keep this list beside you. What you'll realize is that Paul has basically addressed all of these things already in the letter as things that the Corinthians in their dysfunction were not doing well. You would actually find all of this already addressed in the letter. He's addressing a dysfunctional and a divided church with a compelling vision of love. And the vision of what Love looks like inaction is then meant to be a corrective to the way that they have been at each other's throats as a community. And a lot of correction in this letter has had to do with them lacking patience or kindness with one another by preferring themselves or preferring people who are just like themselves. A lot of correction here in chapters 12 and 13 and 14, which we're going to see starting next week, has to do with a correction about the misuse of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. All the way back in, in chapters 1 and 2 and 3, we see Paul dealing with their envy and their boasting as a community. And that thread has continued all the way through the whole letter. 
They've already been rebuked for being arrogant and proud and their rudeness is coming through in the way that they are not concerned with their public behavior. One commentator says their rudeness is, I quote, defiance of social and moral standards with resulting disgrace, embarrassment, and shame. Their rudeness was something that they were actioning. It was an actionable thing in their life. It was flying in convention of the world they were in and really the community that they're a part of. They were always insisting on their own way. They were irritable, which means they were easily angered in their infighting as a church. Our text says, Love is not resentful. Resentful here is actually an accounting word, which is why some translations render it, love does not keep a record of wrongs. Resentful. Love does not, love is not resentful. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. Love's not keeping a score sheet or a spreadsheet of wrongs that have been committed, which is exactly what they were doing. And it's one of the reasons that their church was so divided. Love doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing or rejoice in evil, but rejoices with the truth, which I think is dealing with the behaviors that are evidenced in their sexual sin and in their worship of false idols. They're rejoicing in evil, wrongdoing, but love rejoices in the truth, and I believe that's the truth of the gospel itself. Love bears all things and believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It literally means love always endures. And don't forget that this section of this text is right in the middle of 1 Corinthians 13. It's right in the center, verses 4 to 7. Verses 4 to 7 is right in the middle of chapter 13. And honestly, chapter 13 is right in the middle of chapters 12 and 14. Again, mind-blowing truth. Helping you count. But notice... Chapter 12 is dealing with spiritual gifts. Chapter 14 is dealing with spiritual gifts. Chapter 13 is dealing with love. Right in the middle, and right in the middle of that text is this. Notice it. They were loveless in their use of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The church in Corinth is this gifted church where they've seen all manner of miracles and the gifts of the Spirit in operation, and yet they are boasting, and they are divided, and they are hostile to one another, and they're going about their lives without love. Okay, this is not a nice little interlude in a letter where Paul says some really flowery things about love. It's not a sweet little poetic pause in the letter where they can all think loving thoughts. It's actually a harsh rebuke of their behavior. Now, I know that this was the text at Jim and Pam's wedding on the office. I know. It's been a text in a lot of weddings over the years. But in its context, it's a strong challenge to a gifted church that lacked love. <laughs> I always wanted a soundtrack to walk into. <laughs> Paul's addressing a dysfunctional and a divided church. And he's offering them a compelling vision of love. He calls this vision of love the more excellent way. It's a countercultural corrective to their sin. 1 Corinthians 13 is what one scholar called divine math. He said, you've got all of these spiritual gifts plus all of these really good works. And you've added them all up and you can become very pleased with yourself. But the whole point is, if you have love, you have nothing. Gifts and accomplishments minus love equals nothing. It's like 50 minus 1 equals 0. It's divine math. Without love, your scorecard is zero. 
Whatever you think you have minus love equals nothing. Now to pick up what Sam said last week, they have the fancy car with all the bells and whistles. It's got all the advanced modern engineering. It's got award-winning design. It's got beautiful contours and curves. It's got heated seats and a heated steering wheel because on occasion it gets cold in Vancouver. It's got an incredible stereo so you can listen to Hathaway on the way home. But if you don't put fuel in the car, it never takes you anywhere. You can have all of that, but without the fuel, it doesn't go. Without love, your giftedness does not matter. Without love, we are nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, now here's where it comes down to reality. This week, I have lacked patience and kindness, which means I have lacked love. I have had envy in my heart, and I am tempted to boast, which means my love is deficient. I have been proud and rude. I have selfishly insisted on my own way. I have been quick to anger. And I was really tempted to keep score by making a list of ways that I have been wronged. All because I did not start with love, I started with self. I laughed at things I know are wrong. In fact, I think are evil. And then when I rejoiced in the truth, I was then tempted to think that somehow my rejoicing in the truth would cover up for my failure in every other way, which is the religious gloss we like to put over our lives. Now I've got a choice to make. On one hand, I can repent of my sin, I can trust the gospel, and I can grow. I can bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, and endure all things. And through confessing my sin and turning away from it in repentance and turning back to God, I can realign my life with the way of Jesus. I can realign my life through repentance with the will of God and then I can grow. That is on one hand. Or on the other hand, I have a choice. And what I can do is, I can move the goalposts in this game I'm playing and I can justify my actions and I can redefine what love really is and feel very accomplished about myself. Feel very good about myself. Okay, that's just me this week. It's this simple. I can conform to the biblical image of love or I can redefine love to fit my own selfish desires. That's the choice. We all feel this, right? The choice is ours. I can conform to the biblical definition of love or I can redefine love in my own image. But every time we redefine love to fit our unique and individual situation and circumstances, every time we take a step away from God. So if you're with me today and I'm not the only person who somehow managed to tick every box on this list in failure. If you're with me this week and you want to grow like I want to grow, 
I desperately want you to see that this is only going to make sense if you have a right definition of what love really is. You need a biblical definition of love that transcends the cultural ideas that are so pervasive in our context. To do this, we need to refuse to buy into a convenient, subjective definition of love that's somehow uniquely defined by every individual on their own. We need to reject that, refuse to buy into that, and instead, what we need to do is allow the Holy Spirit to renew our minds. By locking us into this biblical vision of love, the objective truth of what love really is. See, the subjectivity of it, we want to define it by our experience. But I don't believe we're allowed to define love that way because we have an objective definition of love in Scripture. See, how do we determine that? That's the question. How do we, how do, we do this? This feels difficult. It feels heavy. It feels weighty. And, and we ask ourselves a question, how will I ever accomplish this? How can I do this? It's the dysfunction that we see in Corinth. Now, I don't want to perpetuate that in my life, which, which means we need to look then at the second point the character of God. If I'm going to reject the dysfunction I see in the church in Corinth, then I'm going to try to live into this vision of love that Paul is casting for the Corinthians. I need to look at the character of God. So the cultural idea is that we are the highest authority as unique individuals and that we get to define our own reality. That's the world we live in, which means love is what we say it is. In our world, that is the assumed way of coming to a conclusion about what love is. It is what I say it is. I define it because I am the highest authority and because I am the center of the universe, I get to define what love is. If you disagree with that, cultural orthodoxy, people will look at you like you're from Mars. This is the world that we live in. If you've ever spent time wandering around Granville Island, you may have come across this art installation. It says, love is, love allows, and love conquers. And the mural invites you to then write an answer in there. And I can see all of you trying to squint and see what they put in there. The only one that matters is love is pizza. (laughs) Okay? (laughs) Love is pizza. They always clean all the answers off of there. So there's several pictures you can find, and I've seen several different ways this has all been drawn out. Love is this, love allows this, love conquers this. And then every once in a while, they go over, they repaint it, and they, they kind of make it fresh so that you can go write your answer in. And every time, just a shout out to whoever it is writes love is pizza. Every time somebody writes that. It's on all of the photos that you can find, okay? But the biblical idea is so much more helpful than that. Because it doesn't start with us at the center of the whole, like the whole of life as the highest authority. It starts with the biblical idea that love begins with God. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Right? And we've been running around trying to figure this out on our own for so long, and the answer's been right here the whole time. God is love. If we want to understand love, we've got to start with God. Craig Blomberg, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, he said, love, without an objective grounding in the living triune God of the universe, runs rampant. See, our self-definitions of love run rampant if we do not begin with God. We don't get to define what love is on our own. We receive what love is by coming into right relationship with the God who is love. 
right? The, the cultural mantra, right? Where there is love, there is God. Like, I know that sounds nice. But that means we're starting with ourselves at the center. That is always a train wreck. The biblical truth is God is love. Where there is love, there is God. Or God is love. One starts with human beings at the center. One starts with God. Not where there is love, there is God. God is love. Love can't be human-centered because love existed before human creation. We live in a created world. It's the world that God created. But it's important to remember that God preceded his creation. Before all of creation, God eternally existed. Draw the timeline to the left of your page for eternity. That's God. He eternally existed. So logically, we have to think, Love didn't start when human beings started to love. Love came way before that. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Before there was anything, there was God. God always was. And God always is. And it's important because love did not begin once God created the world. From eternity past, the first word of, before the first word of creation was spoken, God is love. Theologians have lots of big words that they love to use to talk about the interrelated love between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But the point to all of the big words is that there is an interrelatedness in God where love has always existed perfectly. God's love is the literal point of origin for all things. God's love is the foundation for our human interrelatedness as well. From before the very beginning, God is love. And from that point forward, which we have in Genesis all the way through to Revelation, we understand the love of God as the very foundation of how we are to relate to one another and to the whole world around us. See, God revealed himself to his people as a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. See, steadfast love and faithfulness is how God has related to his people from the very beginning, not because this is how God chose to relate to his people from the very beginning, because, but, but because it is who he is in his very nature and character. God is love. It's not like the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit said, how should we relate to people? Ooh, I have an idea. It's who they are. It's who God is. The Father is love. The Son is love. The Holy Spirit is love. And they relate to us out of the infinite love deep in the nature and character of God is revealed to us in Scripture. God is love. This is the biblical foundation of love. And so what happens is if we absorb a cultural understanding of love, whether it's through media, through education, through conversation, through whatever, if we absorb a cultural understanding of love that has more to do with romance or self-expression or personal fulfillment or even self-expansion, 
sexual satisfaction, right? the kind of stuff that we see in movies, if that becomes our definition of love, there's no wonder that we're confused. If we've absorbed that, if we take that on board and we're formed by it. Biblical love is self-sacrificial. Biblical love is others-centered. It's built on the foundation that transcends our convenience. God's steadfast love for us is covenantal. We are called to love like this because this is how we have been loved. And this kind of covenant love means that God is with us and it means that he is for us. The foundation of our love for one another, which is the kind of love that is required from 1 Corinthians 13. It's the foundation of that love that is the nature and character of God. We need to know this. This is where we get our definition of love from. And if we don't get our definition of love from the nature and character of God, we have settled for something less. And it will cause harm. The love that is evident in God, that love is most clearly seen in the work of redemption, where God's love sent Jesus to stand in our place, sent him to death on the cross. That is love. So we see the dysfunction in Corinth, and again, we don't want to perpetuate that here. We see the character of God, which defines our understanding of love. But third, we have to look at the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel. Look back at the text that I took you to in 1 John. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That means that he died to remove God's wrath from us. So for John, who's the the beloved disciple we see in his gospel, for John who writes this letter, we call 1 John, for him to say God is love, it is tied directly to the reality that God purposed that Jesus would be born into this world to save his people from their sin. The Bible does not hide from the reality of the ugliness and brokenness of the world. The Bible defines the ugliness and brokenness of the world and explains it and shows us the source of evil and pain in the world and then reveals the way that God is love. God is love is actually what overcomes the problem of sin and the effects of sin. The Bible's very honest about the situation that human beings find themselves in. We don't hide from that. The scriptures don't hide from it. It just highlights the problem, defines it, and then says God is love is the answer. James Denny wrote, For him to say God is love is exactly the same as to say God in his Son has made atonement for the sin of the world. How do we define love? Look at the cross. Look at the cross. It's the outflow of the action of love in perfection. Perfect love. God is love, so Jesus Christ was born to save his people from their sin. God is love, so Jesus Christ was crucified for the salvation of his people. He paid the ransom price for our sin. We are free. 
In his obedience, in dying in our place, he reversed the curse of disobedience and he gained victory for us in his place. In our place, he dies and he takes upon himself the full weight of our sin, the full punishment and penalty of our sin. And he exchanges that with his righteousness, his perfection. We give him our mess He gifts us his perfection and we come into relationship with him. Why? Because God is love. Jesus dies the death that we deserve to die and then he triumphs over death and sin and he's then raised from the dead as what we're going to see later in 1 Corinthians is called the first fruits of new creation in the resurrection. This is love. That's what God is love means. God is love is not supposed to be some kind of sentimental drivel that makes you feel all warm and fuzzy and would look really good in a Hallmark card. God is love. It's not like God is love is sort of a goosebumpy feeling that doesn't require anything of you or any change in your life in any kind of way. If God is love, which he is, And if God is love um, means exactly the same thing as God has made a way in Jesus for your sin to be forgiven and for this broken world to be made whole, if that's what God is love means, and it is, it is what it means, then you've got to think on some level that God is love should practically and concretely change your life. Okay, And it will. And it will. Look at the text. Let me show you. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Okay. Preparing to preach this text this week has been, you could say, confronting to me. It is every week. But really, it was for me this week. I have become more and more acutely aware that I am quite unlike Jesus. Thankfully, God knows this, which is why he invited me to trust the gospel. It's not that he knows that I'm not perfect and he just is okay with me staying that way, which looks a lot like the dysfunction of the church in Corinth. It's that God knows me and loves me and is calling me to a deeper trust in the sufficiency of the gospel, even as he calls me to a fresh obedience in the action of love. Last week when this text was read, I was sitting next to a guy and it's, you know, love is patient and kind. Love is, you know, and it gets to about the point where it says it does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. And he just put his head in his hands and went, oh, And that's what this text can feel like. I am not the kind of person Paul's describing in 1 Corinthians 13. I think that's the point. I think that's the point. See, when I'm at the center of this text, or I read the Bible as though I'm the center of the whole thing, it doesn't make any sense. And in fact, it does get a bit disheartening. But when I read this text with Christ at the center, it is liberating, it is invigorating, and it is beautiful. 
I am not like the person being described in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7. I am quite unlike Jesus. By God's grace, I am not the man I once was. And by God's grace, I am not yet the man I one day will be. But I am not like Jesus. Let me show you what this looks like when you read it with Christ at the center. Listen to this. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. He is not proud or rude. He did not insist on his own way. He is not provoked to anger or keeping a record of wrongs. He does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Christ City, Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast, but in his humility was obedient to his Father and his Father alone. Jesus is not proud or rude. In fact, he is gentle and lowly in heart. And he says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest for your soul. Jesus did not insist on his own way when he was called to the cross, but in the Garden of Gethsemane, he knelt down and prayed that his Father's will be done, not his. He did not insist on his own way. Jesus is not quick to anger, but is filled with compassion when he looks out over the lost sheep of his flock. Jesus does not keep a record of wrongs, but Colossians 2 tells us that on the cross, he canceled the record of debt that stood against us. Jesus does not celebrate evil, but was perfectly sinless. Jesus rejoices in the truth, and as the way and the truth and the life, he is the only means by which we come into relationship with the Father. See, in this text, I think Paul is describing the kind of love we are called to live with But until we see that love in the person of Christ, we will never be able to do it. Am I dismissing the action required of us as followers of Jesus to be patient and kind? No. I'm just telling you, though we are called to love like this, before this kind of love is done by you, you need to see it as love that has been done for you. Apart from the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus and apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, this kind of love is an absolute impossibility. Yes, we need to aspire to it being love that is done by us, but not until we understand it is love that has been done for us. 1 John 4.19 says we love because he first loved us. We love God because he first loved us and we love one another and the world around us because he first loved us. We know what love looks like by being first loved. On our own, we will just repeat the dysfunctional cycles just like the Corinthians. Just the dysfunctional cycles of a loveless church. Talking about all the good things we're doing, talking about all the gifts that we have within our church. Oh wow, look at us, isn't that wonderful? Without love, we're nothing. Nothing. When we define love according to the character of God, we will hold fast to the truth and be transformed by it. And all of this comes to fruition in our lives when we realize that at the heart of the gospel is Jesus Christ, the perfect image of love, doing what love demanded of him, 
giving himself for us so that we could receive salvation and then in receiving be transformed so that we could share the love of God with the broken world around us. See, a dysfunctional church has a very hard time commuting, communicating the hope of the gospel to a lost world. And if you're a follower of Jesus here today, that's your call. It starts with love here, and that love boils over, and it turns into the way that we love one another. Put Christ at the center. Understand love as revealed in the nature and character of God. Understand that love has been done for you and now can be done by you. That we have been loved and now we can love. And your joy will be full. Can you imagine the kind of community that takes this on board? Can you imagine the transformation, the joy, the magnetism of a community like that to people who are just looking for hope? It's not all about us, but it needs to start with us. Would you stand as we respond?